Rucker will learn one day that I get up front more than he does, so uh, we will uh, be glad to, uh, I'll be glad to add a little extra money to his jar uh, on the pie deal. Uh, and by the way, that the trip, uh, the mission trip uh, to, to uh, Nicaragua, we've got uh, our servant from there here, Stephen, would you come on up please? Stephen Valles is here. Stephen, glad to have you, brother. Thank you so much. This guy uh, not only is a great servant, but uh, he translates for me. And that can be a little challenging sometimes, I think, huh? No. No? No. <laughs> well, we're glad that you're here, brother. And uh, uh, be sure and uh, give greetings to your a dad and your mother and the church uh, there when you get back home. Uh, and I just wanted to say a prayer for, uh, for those that don't know. Stephen is our ambassador for One Kingdom uh, in the Central and South America and does so much for our work. And we're just we're glad to partner together. So let's let's pray. Father, thank you for my brother here. Give him safety as he travels and bless his wife and kids and his family. The church in Nicaragua take care of them. Father, they mean so much to us. We're honored to partner together, and thank you for bringing him our way today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Yeah. I'm, also, I'm supposed to remind you that the Easter egg hunt is actually here at the building because of the weather. So uh, uh, all those planning on coming, come on, and uh, you're going to be uh, nice and dry in here. Uh, also, uh, talking about the weather, many of you know the tornadoes that have been through uh, Arkansas, uh, recently Mississippi, now Arkansas, Little Rock and Wind. We've already had a team up there this weekend working. Uh, matter of fact, one of the ministers there at the Pleasant Valley Church, um, uh, Josh Kaysinger, who spent some time here with us in years past, had uh, some trees fall on his house. Chad Johnson and Danny and Beverly and a crew already went up there and got the trees off his house, got it tarped, and uh, trying to get him on his way because we know he's going to be covered up ministering to people in his own church. Uh, we have a lot of connections up there, so, uh, uh, as well as we're in Mississippi. And don't forget all the many we're still helping in uh, Turkey with the earthquake. It's just a lot of a lot of needs there right now. I'm, I'm so grateful to uh, our team, uh, Ryan and the team in One Kingdom, and for what they're doing on the on relief to to uh, take care of those people. And so I want to have a special prayer just for all the, that relief effort that's going on. There's been a lot of loss uh, in a lot of places, and uh, uh, we want this to turn into where people turn their heads toward God, uh, and we want to be a part of helping people uh, who need help. Father, we love you. Uh, sometimes we don't know exactly what to do, but we do know when tragedy strikes. It's nothing else but taking a bottle of water to someone or picking up in their yard or cutting down a tree, just whatever it takes to help people. Uh, we're praying, Father, uh, for comfort for those that lost life through these disasters. We're praying, Father, for our partners that we work with in Turkey. We're praying, Father, for uh, the church in Mississippi as well as in Arkansas and other places that we're involved with relief efforts. We pray, Father, that through tough times like this, that it will cause revival in people's hearts and that they will Understand, all of us understand, we're just one diagnosis or disaster away from losing everything anyway. That our dependence is always on you. We're grateful, Father, for your grace. And bless us as we try to serve the best we can to help folks in other areas uh, that have suffered so much. Watch over them and care for them. Help them to know they're never alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Owen Hudnell, come on up. Owen's going to read our scripture. John four twenty nine. 
Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Thank you. I appreciate it, buddy. Mac? I'm not going to introduce Mac. He needs no introduction. Uh, and uh, plus, we don't want to get to telling old stories anyway. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, uh, grateful to have you back here, brother, and appreciate so much you do for the kingdom, you and Mary, and just want to pray over you as you speak today. Father, thank you for my brother. Fathers, we uh, focus on you. Your story has changed our lives. And... Uh, We've been privileged to to some degree, maybe more than others, to watch Mac and Mary's journey and their story. Thank you, Father, for his commitment to the story of Jesus. Bless him with wisdom as he shares the good news with us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, White's Fair Road family. It is good to be with you this morning. For those of you that don't know me, I am Mac, and I'm here with my wife, Mary, today. Thirty-five years ago, this church family stepped out and took a chance on a pretty reckless young man and introduced me to Jesus Christ. Oh, I'd known about Jesus for all my life. I'd heard about him, but you guys gave me a seat at the table where I could really come and get to know Jesus. And so for that, Mary and I will be eternally grateful to everyone at this church family. And no matter where we are for the remainder of our lives here on planet Earth, this will always be our home. So thank you for having me today. So we got a lot of ground to cover today, so I'm just going to get right into it. We're going to be in John chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn there and read along with me. We're going to be covering the first 42 verses, so we got a lot of ground to cover. You know, one of the things I love most about the Bible are stories where Jesus interacts with just everyday people. But, you know, if I don't get anything out of these accounts of Jesus interacting with ordinary people, if I don't get anything out of those accounts to change my life, then that's all they are. They're just good stories. So it's my hope this morning that out of one of my favorite stories about Jesus, that we can get something practically that can change our lives as we interact with people who are outside of these walls, because we know we were not called to live here. We were called to live out there where we interact with people. This, this morning, is just a recharging station. This is just like when I come in, I plug in, then I go back out to go out there and live where God wants me to make a difference, where God wants you to make a difference in other people's lives. So here we go. The first three, first three verses are going to go pretty quickly because they're basically a setup for the story. This is John chapter 4, starting in verse 1. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. Now, stopping right there for just a second, you know, there's that, it makes a notation here that Jesus was not doing the baptizing. And I wondered, why is that that they would say that? Well, one thing I know is this. Jesus didn't want anybody saying, well, Jesus baptized me. I don't know who baptized you, but Jesus baptized me. Because he didn't want to have favoritism, right? And besides that, there's a whole lot in the Bible about the baptizee, but not a whole lot about the baptizer, you know. So Jesus wants to make that distinction right at the beginning. Verse 3, when the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back to Galilee. So Jesus is going to head back to Judea, I mean, back to Galilee from Judea, because the Pharisees were up to it again. They're trying to start trouble. They want to make a division between John's disciples and Jesus' disciples. So Jesus says, you know what? I'm leaving because I know a group of people who want to hear the good news about salvation. They're not going to have a lot of bickering. They just want to hear what I have to offer them. So he leaves Judea. Now, verse 4, we're going to begin the mission. Now, he had to go through Samaria. 
And right off the bat, I'm going to stop again, but I, I see a very interesting word in that scripture. And the word is had. He had to go through Samaria. Now, a little geography here, that would have been the shortest route from Judea to Galilee, about two and a half to three days journey. But there was two other ways that he could have gone. He could have went east up the Jordan River or he could have went west up along the coast. And this is what any self-respecting Jew would have done. They would have not gone through Samaria. So reading between the lines here, I know he's with the apostles now. And they're like, we're going where? Through Samaria. Oh, no, Jesus, we can't go there. And Jesus is like, oh, no, that's exactly where we're going, because in Jesus' day, the Jews hated the Samaritans so much that they would normally take that longer way, which would double the trip. It would make it about a six-day trip, but they would do that rather than to be seen with or thought that they were associating with Samaritans. And, you know, you would think in the last couple of years is where prejudice started right here in our country. That's not the case. Prejudice has been here since the beginning of time. There's always someone who looks down on someone else because they're different from them. So Jesus chooses the route that nobody wants to go because he is on a mission. He's going to talk to some people whose society would have written off, but he's also going to witness to one person in particular. So Jesus goes on the mission and no mission and nothing anybody could say was going to stop him. So Jesus had to go through Samaria. So when you look at the account, well, you would say, well, that's not quite true. You could have gone the other way, Jesus. But Jesus said, no, I have to go through Samaria, because I have a divine appointment with someone who wants and needs to get to know me better. And by the way, I need to get to know them, too. And there was nobody going to get in the way of this mission, this mission of going to see this person that he had in mind. And, you know, the same thing is true today. If you have come to a place in your life where you're you're just cleaning out some of the clutter, some of the things that are holding you back and you're just tired. You're ready for a change. You might even know, not know what that change is, but you're ready for something different. Jesus will make a divine appointment with you, and nothing will stop him from making that appointment. All right, verse 5. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone to town to buy food. So let's stop here for a moment. A lot is happening in our story already. Sychar is about halfway along the journey. So they'd been traveling, walking for about a day and a half at this point. They get to town. It's the sixth hour. And depending on if you're looking at a Roman clock or a Jewish clock, there'll be a little bit of difference. But it was basically in the heat of the day when he got there. So he sends the apostles to town to get food while he decides to take a rest because he's tired and wait on the person that he'd come to meet. But mostly, I think... It wasn't because he was tired, because he had to go to Samaria. So Jesus is waiting. Hello? Okay. Jesus is waiting at the well, Jacob's well, which is still there today. It's said to be one of the deepest wells in all of the region. So he waits on a Samaritan. Now, that's bad enough, folks. He's waiting on a Samaritan, but it gets worse because now it says he's waiting on a Samaritan woman. To come draw water. And then Jesus asked this woman, Samaritan woman, will you give me a drink? In this moment, Jesus steps over a boundary. The first boundary being a boundary of race and prejudice. Interacting with a people that he had no business interacting with who were literally hated by everybody he was a part of in the Jewish community. And by the way, I love this because... He's going to talk to this immoral outcast 
and instruct us on how we should approach people that nobody wants to have anybody to do with. Don't ever forget, that's part of this story. The second boundary is that he steps over this boundary of the one that separates him from this woman. Being a rabbi, and according to rabbinical law, rabbis were instructed to never, never talk to a woman in public, even their own wives and sisters. In fact, rabbinical law said, it's better, listen to this, you'll love this, women. It's better to burn the law than give it to a woman, because a woman in this culture was regarded as totally unable to understand complicated subjects like religion or theology. You know, I don't know about you guys, but I know some pretty smart women. Some that never stopped praying for me. So Jesus approaches this immoral, unclean, pagan woman, and not only approaches her, but then he asks her for help. This is where we're going to see a theme throughout the four Gospels with Jesus, because he's going to reach out to women all through the Gospels who have been used, abused, and discarded, and tell them, not with just his words, but by his actions, that they have value. Think about it. In the very lineage of Jesus Christ is Rahab, the prostitute. So it's no wonder that he has a soft place in his heart for women who have been used up by men. There's Mary Magdalene. Seven demons. Seven. But you know who Jesus appeared to first in his resurrected body? Mary Magdalene. Then there was a woman who was caught in adultery. He said, you know, I could condemn you because I am actually the only one qualified to do that, but I'm not going to. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to stop what you're doing because it's going to wreck your life. And in doing that, he gives her and us a lesson in grace. And then there was the woman with the bleeding. I love this story because it said he was so jam-packed in a street walking down the road with all these people surrounding him. He just stops and says, who touched me? And the apostles are like, Jesus, calm down. You're surrounded by who touched me. Oh, he's not going to get off of it until she comes forward. And then he cleanses her and heals her on the spot. And then one of my favorite is the woman who washes his feet with her hair. And with perfume, and I love it because the Pharisees were, in, I mean, they, they were hot about this, right? They were mad that she was doing that. And he said, you know what? She's been forgiven much. She loves much. You, you Pharisees, you leaders, you've been forgiven very little in your mind, and you love very little. And you know what I love about this story? It says, her story will never be forgotten. It will be told until the day I come back, Jesus says, about what she did here today. And then, of course, we have the woman at the well. So Jesus sets a precedent early in his ministry, and he frequently gives some of the highest honors to those in the lowest places. I love that about Jesus. The woman we're talking about today is going to become quite the evangelist. You know, Jesus lets everybody know why he treats women like this. He says they are equal image bearers of God. Women are equal image bearers of my Father, of me. And before you get hung up and say, oh, Max, on some kind of woman's lib sermon this morning, that's not what it is at all. God still gives us all different roles and responsibilities as men and women. But Jesus himself wanted to let us know that men and women were both created from the same image. And that is the image of our Father, equal image bearers of God. So by starting a conversation with this woman, Jesus just spoke volumes. And it was very loud. So Jesus asked for help when he says... Could you give me a drink of water? So let's continue in verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Jesus answered, 
if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw water from this well with. It's deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from himself as did his sons and his flocks and his herds? All right, I love this part too. I love it all. Verse 9, the woman states the obvious. You're a Jewish man. I'm a Samaritan woman. Why in the world would you ever talk to me, much less ask for help from me? Jesus says, okay, I, I get it. You don't quite understand. Because if you knew who was asking you for this drink, you would have already asked me if I wanted a drink. And I would have given you something much more than you asked for. I would have given you a drink from living Water, But still not understanding, but respect, respectful because she addresses him as sir. Sir, you know this is a deep well, right? You got nothing to draw. I don't see a rope or a bucket that you got with you. How are you going to get that water out of there? And how are you going to get to this living water, which actually translates to running water? Where are you going to get this running water from this well? Nothing's moving down there, Jesus. It's still Where are you going to get running water from? It's not a stream, Jesus. So Jesus goes a little deeper and he adds another little twist. He said, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Verse 13. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. Notice what Jesus says here. What I want to give you is going to start off as a spring inside of you, and it's going to grow into something that is going to lead you right to eternal life with me. Hmm. Now, I like that. But it's still very unclear to her that Jesus is now talking about something very different than the water in this well. He says, drink this well water. You're going to have to come back here every day just to fill another pot to get another drink. Every day you're going to have to. But what I want to give you, the water I give, is available constantly for you, and it's going to start from, it's going to come from within. It will be a spring in us. Sound familiar? Kind of like the Holy Spirit. That he wants to give each one of us living inside of us so that when we're weak, when we're tempted, we can draw on that power at any time and we don't have to go far to get it. You know, drinking of this life giving spirit that is now within us, we can experience a quality of life here on this earth that we never could have experienced otherwise without that. I mean, and when we think about it, we think about Jesus said, I came to give you life and give you life abundantly. And for some reason, we think that means heaven. We'll have an abundant life when we get to heaven. Of course, we're going to have an abundant life when we get to heaven. But he says, no, here on this earth, too, I came to give you abundant, full life. So this means this. Whenever we're short on things like love, Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He said, when you're short on those things, when I lack those things, he says, take a drink of my spirit that is welling up inside of you when you need more of these qualities to live here on this earth. So the message was not just for her, but it's for us today. I'm going to keep coming back to the well. I'm going to keep coming back. And I'm going to drink from that well. And the neat thing about it is today, I don't have to go far because it's inside of me. Still confused now, verse 15, the woman replies, Sir, give me this water so that I don't get thirsty and I have to keep coming back to draw water. So now it becomes obvious that she doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about, right? So now it's up to Jesus. Jesus has to make a way for her to understand what he's saying. Why does he have to make a way? Because he offered the water and she just accepted. 
She said, sir, give me the water. So it's not up to her anymore. She asked for the water. He offered it. Now he's going to have to supply the water that he offered. And remember this. Don't ever forget this. Jesus is smart. So he knows what to say next. Jesus knows that there's something holding her back. She's still in the dark. And remember the Gospel of John at the very beginning in verse about three. It says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not understood it. So he knows there's something from her dark past holding her back from seeing the light. And Jesus knows what it is. And he's immediately going to deal with that. So, Jesus, what are you going to do now? How are you going to handle this? I mean, he could go into a long deal where he says, I'm going to be crucified. Then after I'm crucified, I'm going to be raised from the dead. And then the Spirit's going to come. The Spirit's going to come live in you. But that's not what he does. So in true Jesus fashion, he says something that seems like has nothing to do with what we're about to talk about. She says, give me the water. He said, go get your husband and tell him to come back. And she says, I don't have a husband. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you don't have a husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and now the man you're with is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. You know, I I read some commentators uh, about this, and they were saying that Jesus didn't have his omniscient powers at this time. He hadn't come into them, and that somehow he had been going through this village, and he'd heard about the woman. That's why he stopped. No! He's Jesus! He knew This woman was going to be at the well. Remember, he had to go to Samaria. He had to. He had to go because he knew he was going to have this conversation with this woman. And since repentance is a part of coming to Jesus, he had to deal with her past, the things that were holding her back from coming into a relationship with him, from coming into the light. And again, doesn't that sound so familiar? Because that's what has to happen in our lives, every one of us, right? We have to recognize that we are possessed with darkness. We have to deal with the darkness. We have to admit the darkness before it's ever going to come out. And then we trust our lives to the light, Jesus Christ. So Jesus is getting ready to shuck the corn. And he proceeds to tell her all of her past. Her husbands, the men she lived with. And he knew he had to get it all out because what he saw in her was something in her heart that was hungering and thirsting for more. So he knew he had to get all this out. He had to purge that. And she had been used, abused, and discarded. And the only way to show her her value was to let her know that she was worthy of a rescue. And her response reveals a lot about what she's already been thinking. Verse 19, she said, Sir, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews, you claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now, when you look at that at first glance, you might be thinking, Oh, she's trying to change subject. She's trying to deflect. Get this off of me. But I don't believe that. I believe she's way past that now. Jesus asked for help from her instead of demanding that she did something for him like all the other men in her life. And then he offers her a free gift of something that sounds incredible. But she's still trying to figure out exactly what does he mean. And then he brings up her painful past. Not with a condemning tone. Oh, I know what you did and you're going to hell. No, not at all. That's not what he did. But with a compassion, and hear this, but with a compassion that God extends to each one of us, knowing our past. She says, you're right. I can see you're a prophet, so there's no sense in hiding what I've done. You seem to know everything about me already. You know all my bad, sinful decisions that I've made in life, and that you're still... Here talking to me, you must realize, Jesus, I've got nowhere else to go. You're saying there's a chance for me. If so, where do I get this life that you're talking about? You Jews have made it impossible for my people. 
and I'm an outcast among the outcasts. How in the world do you think I'm going to get this? Then with the patience of a Savior who specializes in redeeming people who others have written off, he says this in verse 21. Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know. For our salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. So Jesus now addresses three questions that she's brought up. The first question is about where we're going to worship. And he says, you know, that question is just about to be irrelevant. Just like my having this conversational with you is totally out of the normal range of things that I should be doing according to my people. This conversation is going to change very quickly. I'm going to change the way people worship, he says, or can Worship God. Temples and buildings are not going to be necessary anymore because I'm going to make your body my temple. And that's where your worship is going to start. Now, he's not saying that what we're doing here this morning, corporate worship, is useless. He's not saying that at all. What he's saying is that since I'm going to make your body a temple, you don't have to wait till you get here to start worshiping. You can worship on your way here. Because the Spirit is indwelling us. Second question. He says, I need to give you more knowledge because right now what you have is incomplete. It's sort of secondhand truth. Some information, but not all the information. You've been misled by people who claimed to be in charge. You've heard a little bit of truth, but it was mixed with a whole lot of error. Now I will say this. The Jews know more about me. Jesus would say, than the Samaritans do. They know that there was a proper place to carry on worship because they've been a part of God's plan. But let me tell you what they missed. They missed that the plan of salvation that was given to them was meant for the whole world, not just the Jews. That's what they missed. That's why I'm here talking to you. Third, I'm going to say something to you that I really haven't said a lot about, is what he tells her. He said, I'm going to say it to you because I believe you're going to get it. True worship, he said, is going to start from inside with your heart. It's not going to be about show anymore. There's not going to be a lot of religious rites. He said, it's going to start from your heart, but it's got to be honest. It's got to be truthful worship. It's going to be your lifestyle. So when you leave the temple, people out there are not going to have to wonder who you're following. They're going to see it on you. They're going to notice something different about you because you're going to be worshiping me in a way that you live. By the way that you live. Not just with a ritual. You see, my father is not so much interested in what you say. He is real interested in what we do, how we act out there. Now I can see the wheels are turning in the woman's head, and I can see that she's heard what Jesus said, but it could, could, it, could, it, could it really be that easy? I mean, could it be that easy? I mean, it was so complicated up to this point with all the rituals and laws. And he said, it's going to be easy for me to worship God now. And is he saying that I, an immoral Samaritan woman, I can be a part of this? I can worship God? Oh, he must be mistaken. I must be mistaken in what I'm hearing him say. Surely I'm not hearing this right. So she says this. And get ready. This is about to be the big reveal. The woman said, I know the Messiah. He is coming called Christ when he comes He will explain it to me. And I love this because it's sort of like, look, I know you're something special, buddy. But I'm waiting on the Messiah to get here. When he comes, he's going to share everything he needs to. But thanks for trying. And then just like that, just like the climax in the movie, when you're waiting, you know that line's coming. Jesus is about to give her the line. And she says, I know when the Messiah gets here, he'll tell me everything. And he goes, That would be me. 
I love that part because it says, Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. The first time, check it out. The first time Jesus reveals himself as Messiah is to this woman who religious officials and society has written off. She's no good. But Jesus says, I beg to differ. And something I'll share with people till the day I die is this, that Jesus loves broken people. That's who he uses to advance his kingdom. And then it's like the disciples show back up at this exact moment, and it's almost like a let the air out of the tire moment, right? Here comes the disciples. And they're like looking at her like, hey, what's she doing here? But not so fast because this woman who has come to the realization of who she's been talking to becomes quite the on-the-spot evangelist right, right then, and nobody's going to shut her up. Nobody. You see, she's just been rescued by the Savior of the world, and nobody's going to be able to tell her to be quiet. It would seem as though she turns to Jesus and she goes, I'm fixing to tell everybody, and Jesus counters with, I was sort of counting on that. Verse 27, as she's running off to town, the disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking to the woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, here it is. Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? How many of you would be this excited to have somebody tell everybody everything you've ever done in your past? She's fired up about it. (laughs) You know, I first remember when I first became a Christian and somebody said, hey, have you heard about Mac? And the person they were talking to said, yeah, he's telling everybody. And I felt just like this woman, you see. I didn't care and don't care who knows about my past, and neither did she, because that's not me anymore. And that wasn't her anymore. You know, this old playback, playbook that she had, that she was reading pages from, all those pages were gone now. She had a brand new page, and Jesus was telling her, you can make new entries about who you are starting now. Verse 30. They came out of town and made their way towards him. This is all the people that she told. I find this quite unusual because the townspeople still knew her as that woman. You know that woman, the one we keep our kids away from, the one if she walks into the room, we go to the other side of the room, the one we talk about behind her back when she's gone. That woman is the one who told them All about Jesus. So evidently something's happening here. Evidently God's spirit that's now, Jesus said, could live in you, is now made a change in her words and giving her words some extra weight because they are seeing her in a new light almost immediately. Yeah. Yeah. Don't get me fired up. (laughs) why else would they leave what they're doing and walk out of town to go see this person who she's been talking about? Meanwhile, while the people are coming out of town to see Jesus, Jesus takes this opportunity to educate his disciples a little bit further. Verses 31 through 38. Let's go through them. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then the disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? Can't you hear Jesus saying, hey, I'm right here. I hear what you're saying. My food, Jesus says, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe, or some of the older manuscripts said they are white unto harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life, so the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows, another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for, 
Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Here's what I know about Jesus. Jesus doesn't waste time. He is the creator of time. He's outside of time. But when he's talking with us, he doesn't waste time. He gets right to the point. And so while he's waiting on the woman to come back, he said, this is an opportunity that I can talk to my apostles about what they need to be doing. Because he knows she's coming back with people and there's going to be a lot of people and they're going to have a lot of work to do. So he says, I need to educate my apostles just a little bit more on some things that will help them become better evangelists in the future, as well as this woman. So he starts with the first lesson. He said, there's a deep satisfaction and obedience to God and doing what he wants me to do in my life. He said, there's a deep satisfaction. He said, I love it because he, he equates it as a meal. He said, it's like eating a big delicious meal, the best you could ever imagine. And when I thought about that and Jesus saying that, I was thinking, that's Sunday lunch right here in Louisiana, right? A big old roast, some some peas that are, that are, that are cooked in a little bacon fat, you know, some rolls, some salad, some rice, and maybe a little dessert. After that, you know, you're heading for the recliner. You're like, man, I just want to take a nap. I feel so good. That's what Jesus said it's like when you come into a relationship with God and you're faced with temptation or you're faced with a struggle or you're faced with sin in your life. And you say to yourself, instead of participating in that, because I know it's wrong, I'm just going to do what's right and I'm going to obey God. He said, that's what it's like. And then after you've had time to reflect on making that right decision, you start to feel a satisfaction, a contentment. And wow, I just did the right thing. And maybe that's none of you, but that's how I feel when I do the right thing. Because sin is right there, crouching at the door, ready to devour us, right? He said, make the right decisions based on what you believe, not how you feel. And then Jesus moves right into when you're obedient to the Father because you've been rescued. When you know the freedom that you have from that past life you used to live. You start to tell people what happened to you. You you can't help it. You've got to tell. You can't hold this in. If you know you've been rescued, you can't not talk about it. Then he says, when this happens, a harvest will come. When you plant your seeds, he says, you know, normally a seed takes about four months. But with this, with a spiritual harvest, the results can be almost immediate. You know, for much of my young life, I was told I was going to hell. And I had accepted that. I accepted that. I mean, tell me something I don't know. I knew I wasn't living the life that I was raised to live, but you know what? I didn't want to because nobody ever planted that seed of hope in me. But then someone from here told me, Mac, you know, I know you think you're going to hell, but what if I could tell you where to get a ticket to heaven? I was like, excuse me? You mean there's a better side to this? Because all I heard ever before was the negative part. He said, no, I can tell you how you can get to heaven. My interest was piqued immediately. A message of hope was sown in my heart that day, and I knew that I wanted to change my life, and I wanted to follow this Jesus. So between the sowing and the harvest, guess what? We started to reap things pretty immediately, starting with a better relationship in our life, in our family's life. And then Jesus using us to share the good news, us as a family. So he's telling his disciples, look, someone else has already done the planning. Who was it? It was Jesus. And now this woman is planning back in town. And it's going to produce a really, really big crop. She's been spreading the news. And now, listen to this, in white robes that would have been the custom of the day that they'd be wearing, the early manuscripts when it says, The fields are white under harvest is exactly what it meant because Jesus was pointing to a bunch of people in white coming towards him. And he was saying, boys, there's your harvest right there. It's walking right towards you. And that's the way it is in God's kingdom. Some sow, others reap, but we all labor together, every one of us. And we rejoice together in God's goodness, not only in our lives, 
but the lives he sends us. You know, this isn't about any one of us. This is about all of us. And the fact that he would trust us with this message, and just like it says in Second Corinthians 5.20, that we would become his ambassadors as if he was speaking through us. Wow. I ain't got over that one yet. Verse 39. Look, we finally got into the, the verse that I wanted to get to. My favorite verse, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. Mary says, you can't say it's your favorite verse because you say that about a lot of them. Um, but I don't think I've ever said that about Leviticus, anything in Leviticus. But anyway, um, verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans come to him, they urged him to stay with them for a while. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man is the Savior of the world. So here's the question. What's your story? What's your story? And here's where it gets a little sketchy to me because... I hear people say, well, Mac, I don't have a story like yours. I was never really quite that bad. (laughs) And you could fill in the blank with any other former heathen that still attends here today. I don't have a story like them. So as a new Christian, I heard people say, you know, I don't have a story like that. And I thought, well, I guess there are some people that have lived such a good life that they just didn't need the grace of Jesus like I did. But upon further study, I came to a realization that that's not true. That is not true. There is no one good, not even one. That's what it says in Romans 3.10. And then in Romans 3.23, it says, for all Leaves out nobody. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then it says in Colossians 1, 13 and 14, For he rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of all our sins. And this verse doesn't say he rescued some of us or one of us. He rescued us, all of us. Period. So here's what I know. If you don't hear anything else today, hear this. Without a rescue, there is no relationship with Jesus Christ. There has to be a rescue. And if there's a rescue, there has to be a story. I've never heard of anybody that's been rescued from something that said, I don't want to tell you about it. Are you kidding me? Of course we're going to tell people about it. But Mac, I've been a pretty good person. I mean, I didn't do the things you did, so I've been pretty good. Do you know what else? There was another person in the book of John who was pretty good too, Nicodemus. You remember that story? In John chapter 3, he comes to meet Jesus in the dark. And by the way, Jesus does some of his best work in the dark. Because that's where the light can shine in and penetrate the darkness. But he comes to see Jesus. He has that, you know, that, that come to Jesus meeting, even though he's been a perfect man. You know, there's nothing in the Bible that says Nicodemus lived a really simple life. Nothing in there. He was a pretty good guy. Then in uh, chapter 7, it says he's defending Jesus in front of the Pharisees. And then in chapter 19, I love this part, because in chapter 19, he shows up with somebody else, with Joseph of Arimathea. And it says Joseph of Arimathea was secretly a, a, a disciple of Jesus. Secretly. But you know what he was doing here? He came to get the body. You know, when you leave with a body, the secret's out. So he gets the body, and guess who's with him? Nicodemus. You know, it seems as though Nicodemus has been sharing his story with other religious leaders, and now it looks like to me that Nicodemus has got himself a convert. Two pretty good men who now had a story to say tell. So again, what I know Everybody who follows Jesus, everybody who's been rescued has got a story. Here's what else I know, and I hate to say this, but it's the truth, so I'm going to say it. There are a lot of good people in Washita Parish who are going to hell. And when I say good people, I mean people who don't steal or cheat or lie very much. They're just good people. 
You know what they're waiting on? They're waiting to hear a story from other good people on how they needed to be rescued. Because somebody who has lived a pretty good life, when they hear the story of someone who repents from really bad things, that's not going to resonate with them a whole lot. They'll say something like, oh, I'm so glad that happened to you, and I'm so glad you got religion, but I wasn't that bad. So they're waiting on stories from people who had a good story. You know, one of my favorite testimonies of all times that we did in Celebrate Recovery was from somebody that many of you might know, and some of you have heard the name, but Carl Allison. He was an elder here for a lot of years. He was one of the best men I've ever known in my life. And I asked him, I said, Carl, would you give your testimony at Celebrate Recovery? And he said, Mac, uh, I'd be glad to, but I don't have a story like everybody else there. And I said, exactly. And that's what we want to hear. A story of a man who had made pretty good decisions in life, but still found himself coming up short and came to the conclusion that he needed to be rescued too. That's the story I needed to hear, that good choices were possible. I'm going to leave you with this. Upon hearing the story of this woman, many came to believe in Jesus. You see, it was her story that compelled others to believe the fact that she had encountered the Savior of the world. You know, the Bible does not say, and she debated theology with the rulers of the land. No. She didn't do that. She didn't coerce or compel or, or press people into changing their lives. She didn't deliver great messages. It never says any of that. What it does say is, He told me everything I'd ever done. Come and see. So the question this morning is this. What's your story? You gotta have one. What's your story? Who are you telling? Who are you telling your story? You know, I don't know where you're at this morning. Maybe you've been holding on to your story and you need to repent and stop keeping this life changing message from others who are literally dying to hear it. Maybe you have some other need this morning. I don't know, but I know this. This is a safe place. Whatever you're struggling with this morning, come while we stand and sing. People will be down here ready to pray with you.